She hires Muhammad ibn Abdullah to work in her business. She admires his character. She turns down marriage proposals from other men with more wealth than the young Muhammad. And she asks Muhammad, who is 15 years younger, to marry her. She's about 40 years old. I mean, how amazing is that, right? That's, that's a great story. We love that story, right? So Muhammad and Khadijah are married for 15 years. They have six children. And then the prophet receives the first revelation. When the prophet comes down from Mount Hira, after his encounter with the angel Jabril, he first goes home to his wife, Khadijah. He is shaking. She wraps him in a blanket. She comforts him. He doubts himself, and he wonders what's happening to him. But she is the one who believes in him. And she becomes the first person to bear witness to the message and become Muslim. But then, several years later, Khadijah dies. The prophet and the early Muslims are in Mecca. They're under enormous threat because the prophet has been publicly speaking about the message. And the Quraysh, the main tribe in Mecca at the time, are not happy at all. Things are really getting tough. I mean, life-threatening tough. Then the prophet proceeds to marry one woman after another. He marries the first two women in the same month. So, okay, I'm listening to the story, and I'm wondering, this is where I would quickly skip over these ayats in the Quran about those other women, of the other women, right? I'm, I'm for Khadijah, right? You know, how, this is, how, how could this happen, right? How could this man, who I saw as the most generous, generous, supportive husband, all of a sudden, in my mind, he morphs into this man with this entire harem of women. This did not make sense to me. Maybe you felt the same way too. I mean, we kind of lose it, right? Polygamy is a concept that is quite honestly foreign to my upbringing. It's, very, it's not something I was, I'm familiar with, right? And I'm thinking, isn't this so totally oppressive to women, okay? And the prophet, our dear, gentle prophet, He's taken multiple wives. That concept just did not match my perception of the prophet's character as I saw it. I had heard the arguments that the prophet took these wives to forge political alliances. Okay, that made sense. He was building the Ummah, the Muslim community. It's a hostile world, he needs help. But what about these women? Were their lives sacrificed for this greater good? How unfair to them, I thought. So then, I decided I needed to go to the text. I needed to go to the Quran. Surely there would be an answer for this whole question about polygamy in the Quran, right? Doesn't Allah tell us in Surah Al-Baqarah, the second surah? He says, "Thalika kitabun fihi hudan lil mutakin." Thalika kitabun. This is the book. In it is guidance sure, without doubt, for those who fear Allah or those who are God conscious. 
surely the text would give me some kind of an answer to this. So I went to the 33rd surah, surah, surah al-Azab, because that's the surah that talks not only about the prophet's wives, but to them. And so what I found when I started reading these ayats in that surah, this is what I'm going to share with you today. And if you decide if what I'm about to say makes sense to you or not, that's your decision. And I pray that Allah will excuse me for any of my errors and protect us all from anything that I might say that is incorrect. My hope is that this topic will promote dialogue about the wives of the prophet. But one caveat here. Spoiler alert, this is not about polygamy. As I learned more, it became very clear to me that there is a message here that goes way beyond the issue of polygamy, like way beyond the issue of polygamy. It goes to the heart of women's role in Islam itself. Okay, so let me start. I'm gonna start with the historical record. I knew from the history that none of the women who married the prophet after Khadijah bore him any children that survived. We know that many of these women had children from previous marriages. They were widows because their husbands had been martyred in the battles or they had been divorced, sometimes because they or their families accepted Islam and their husbands did not. We know that the women were capable of having children. And as I said, the prophet had six children with his first wife, Khadijah. So we know he was fertile. But only one woman, one wife after Khadijah, the wife Mariam, had any children with the prophet and her son, Ibrahim, died as an infant. So none of these women, other than Khadijah, had biological children by the prophet who survived infancy. And we know that the prophet had intimate relations with these women and that he was encouraged to keep them satisfied. It says it in the surah. But no children were born. Doesn't that seem a little odd? No children? All of these women and none of them had any children? Okay, so we know that's historical fact. That's what we know historically. So I'm thinking, perhaps Allah is calling these women to something different. They are not to be the mothers of the biological children of the prophet. That was not the purpose of the marriages. Okay, so now we turn to what the Quran has to say. In the Quran, they are called the mothers of the believers. So, okay, no children, but what does being a mother of the believers mean? So here's the really interesting part. The Quran says to the women in the surah, and Allah speaks directly to them. It says, Ya nisa' al-nabi, Ya nisa' al-nabi, O you wives of the Prophet, or you women of the Prophet, lastina kahadin min al-nisa'. O oh, women of the prophet, you are not like any of the other women. The wives of the prophet are not like any other women. 
And the verse continues, and I'll, I'll say what the English translation is. If you do fear Allah, be not too complacent or soft. The translations are the word complacent, soft, or complacent of speech. Least one in whose heart is a disease should be moved with desire. But speak a speech that is just. Allah is telling them not only to speak, but when they speak, to not speak softly, to speak up, to speak up. But what are they supposed to speak up about? Well, then the Quran says, the wives are to stay quietly in their homes and not make a display of themselves, like flaunting their beauty or their status. And again, in the English translation, like that of the former times of ignorance, they should establish regular prayer, give regular charity, obey Allah and his messenger. And Allah only wishes to remove all abomination from you, speaking to the wives, you members of the family, and to make you pure and spotless. Then, if you read the next ayat, it says to the wives, and Allah is speaking directly to them, okay, there's a speak up, you become pure. Then it says, and it's using the feminine gender here in the Quran, so we know it's specifically talking to these women. It says in the English again, recite what is rehearsed to you in your homes of the signs of God and his wisdom. For Allah truly understands the finest mysteries and is well acquainted with them. It is telling the women to recite. So the implication is that these women are to get the wisdom from the signs of Allah, Allah's wisdom. And who is relating the signs of Allah and Allah's wisdom? Their husband. The prophet is receiving the revelation. And where is the prophet? He's in their homes. He's in their homes. The wives are learning the wisdom from the prophet, and they are told by Allah to recite, recite that wisdom. Let me repeat that. The wives are learning the wisdom from the prophet, and they are told by Allah to recite the wisdom. Okay. Are you with me? Are you with me? <laughs> okay. So it goes on. All right. He's got these wives. And then, in the seventh year of the Hijra, they've left Mecca, they're in Medina. The revelation comes down to the prophet. After that time, after the seventh year of the Hijra, he is not to marry any other wives, nor is he to change any of the wives that he's already married. So, at this point, he has married 12 wives, starting with Khadijah, down to the last wife. What is the significance of the number 12? How many disciples did Jesus have? 12, right? How many sons did Jacob have? 12. What were the disciples of Jesus supposed to do? 
Spread the message of Jesus, right? What were the sons of Jacob supposed to do? Believe in Allah, practice the religion, the deen, the religion of one God. What were the wives of the prophet told to do by Allah? They were to recite the signs of Allah and his wisdom. And how did they do that? Well, back to the historical record. We know that four of the wives were hafiz. That means they, had, they knew the whole Quran by heart. One of the wives, Hafsa, is the one who set down the text in the order that it is today in the Quran. Seven of the wives gave legal decisions and were judges and scholars, not just to women, but to the entire community, to the Ummah. There's one quote from one of the Sahabas, one of the companions of the Prophet at the time, who said, after the Prophet's death, he said, when the wives of the Prophet are among us, why should we inquire from anyone else? So I already mentioned the ayat that says these wives are not like other women. There is another confirmation in the Quran that they are special. They are told specifically by Allah that if they, if they want the life of this world, this is after they've been married, if they want the life of this world, if they want to be out of this whole prophet of the wives scenario, they don't want to sign on to that responsibility, they are told that it's okay. They could be released, in the translation say, in a handsome way. Don't worry about it. So they were given a choice. And all of them decided to stay. So what Allah asked of these women was huge. In my mind, clearly these women had a very, very special role. So perhaps Allah is telling us that the 12 wives of the Prophet were sent with the same special role that in the past had been delegated to the men, the sons of Jacob, the disciples of Jesus, all the men. But for this new religion, Islam, the third of the three polytheistic religions, perhaps Allah sent the women in that role. They sent the people closest to the prophet. They were sent as the wives. From the first wife, Khadijah, who becomes the first Muslim, to the last of the wives. So think about it. If you wanted to assign the task of carrying out the message that the prophet was given, and you wanted women to do it, what other way was there than except as wives? The prophet could not have access to these women. He couldn't just be around these unmarried women and teach them. He needed a proper way to legitimize that access, and it had to be unlimited access, because he's getting all these revelations. It's coming along. It's a lot to to digest, right? So the marriages gave the prophet the protection of access to these women, and it also protected them, because remember this, even after the prophet's death, these women were told, or the men were told, that they were not to be married. They could not marry the widows of the prophet. So even after the prophet's death, they were protected by that status of being a wife of the prophet. 
and they were free to spread the message. So they were indeed like not any other women. They were not like the other women. Alhamdulillah, I say what I have said. May Allah forgive us all. Alhamdulillah. These are the names of the wives of the Prophet. May Allah be pleased with them in the order of their marriage. Some of the names you may recognize. Khadija, the first wife, the first Muslim, a woman. Sauda, she was the first wife after Khadija. By all, by all accounts, she was a very common woman. She had immigrated to Abyssinia or Ethiopia when some of the Muslims fled Mecca. She was a widow. And the prophet wanted to show by marrying her that the Muslim community needed to take, to take care of the widows. So she's the first one after Khadijah. By all accounts, she was not a particularly pious woman. She used to complain that her nose would bleed when she went out, down into the prayer position in, in the recruit. And actually, the prophet wanted to divorce her, and she begged him not to divorce her. Next came Aisha. She, married the same, she was married to the prophet the same month as Sauda. She was the daughter of Abu Bakr, one of the main companions, became a caliph. Aisha narrated over 2,000 hadiths, or histories. So those two women, Khadijah, Sauda, and Aisha, were married in Mecca. The rest of the wives were married in Medina. And the first one was Hafsa, who was the daughter of Omar, also another of the major um, companions, and became a caliph. Um, Hafsa was the, was the daughter of a martyr, uh, the widow of a martyr also, and she was described as being very feisty. Um, she's the one who set down the Quran in the order that we know it today, as I mentioned. The prophet wanted to divorce her too, but apparently the angel Jibril came down and said, no, Hafsa, she fasts, she prays, you gotta keep her. <laughs> so then there was Zainab bin Qusayma. Zainab bin Qusayma was, the, the prophet was her fourth husband, okay? One had divorced her, two were martyred, and sadly, she only lived about eight months after the marriage to the prophet. She was known for spending liberally on the poor. So the person that was married after Zainab was Umm Salama. So many of you might have heard of Umm Salama. She actually wavered in deciding to marry the prophet. She wasn't so sure. Her husband had been um, close to the prophet. Um, she was very famous for her beauty. She gave legal decisions. And she is the one that you know, might know of the story of the Treaty of Hudabeah. She's the one who counseled the prophet in that, in that situation. The second Zainab was Zainab bin Jaus, who was also a cousin of the prophet. And you'll recognize her name because she was the one who had married the prophet's adopted son, Zayed. And a revelation came down to say that it was OK for the prophet to marry her because he wasn't a blood son. Shawariya bin al-Haris, she was only 20 years old when she was married. She was from another tribe. She was captured in a battle. A Muslim offered to free her for a ransom. She didn't have the money, so she asked the prophet to ransom her. Uh, and the prophet married her, and he, he freed 100 families from her tribe as a result of that. Um Habiba, amazing sister. She's, she's the daughter of Abu Sufyan. He's, he's one of the most fiercest opponents of the prophet. She migrated to Abyssinia, to Ethiopia, with her husband. But while they're in Ethiopia, her husband decides that he wants to become a Christian. Ethiopia is a Christian nation that sheltered the early Muslims. So 
Umabiba's in Abyssinia. The prophet hears about this. He sends a marriage proposal to the king to ask Umhabibas in marriage, hand in marriage, and the king himself, King Negdus, stands in for the prophet during that ceremony. Three more. Sophia is the daughter of a descendant of Aaron or Harun, the brother of Moses. She's Jewish. She was captured in a battle. The prophet paid her ransom. The prophet offered to free her or to marry her, and she chose the marriage. Memuna, not much known about her, very pious, very kind to the family. And finally, Mariam, who was the last wife. She had been given as a gift to the prophet from the cops in Egypt. So she came from a Christian background. So these are the women. Very diverse group. It's not what people think. Some were wealthy, some were, wealth, were poor, some were young, some were old. Before they accepted Islam, they were polytheists, they were Christian, they were Jewish. Some had brilliant intellects, brilliant women. Some, not particularly brilliant. They were, I would argue, a mirror of the community, the Ummah of Islam, that received the message from the prophet that he was sent to deliver. So each of them had a unique role to play in the history of Islam. Each was chosen and each accepted that role. They were called upon to spread a new religion in a society that not only was polytheist, but did not value women. Remember, this is a society where it was common to bury the female infants alive because they were ashamed. They faced a world of challenges that we cannot even imagine. But because of them, Islam spread. So in concluding, I will say that we really need more scholarship about the role that these women played. While two of the, dives, the wives died before the death of the prophet, the youngest wife, Aisha, lived five decades after his death. And there's so much that we don't know about those years immediately following that. Information that would be instructive for us today. So I remind myself and you, let us not forget the legacy of these women. Let us embrace all of them, not just Khadijah. Their spirit is reaching across the centuries to remind us that we can do more than we think is possible. If they could do what they did in their time, why not us and why not now? And finally, a message to the Muslim men. Shout out to the brothers. Several brothers came to me and told me when they heard that I was doing this khutbah that they would love to be here too. And inshallah, they will listen to this at a later date on the audio. But they and all the men need to hear what women have to say. And inshallah, there will come a day when the voices of Muslim women will be heard. The voices of Muslim women will be heard more freely in the same way that the wives of the Prophet were able to raise their voices as Allah had commanded them to do.
to speak up. And I believe our day is coming. That day is really close. So I'm thankful for the leadership of the Muslim Women's, the Women's Mosque of America. What an ambitious goal. Women's Mosque of America. <laughs> Hasna Masnavi, Dina Lekovic, Camila Wickerson. Wickerson, where's Camila? Camila's here. Camila was the first one to ask me to do this khutbah. So I thank you all. And I thank all of those who work to make the Women's Mosque of America possible. This is an historic effort. This is history. So let us embrace this time and the space that the organizers have created for us. The space will allow us to grow stronger for the days ahead, for the pleasure of Allah's peaceabilillah. Let's make dua. Ya Allah, we thank you for giving us the example of the wives of the Prophet. Give us the strength like the strength that you gave to them. Help us to overcome our shortcomings. Empower us to go out. Go out into the world and speak up to a world that desperately needs our voices. Help us to use the talents, skills, and wisdom that you have given us to do what you want us to do. Give us the courage to overcome the obstacles in our path. Give us the courage to face down our fears and grant us what will make us worthy of your mercy. Inna Allaha wa malaikatu yusalina alayhi al nabi. Ya yuhalladina amanu salu alayhi wa salima taslima. Indeed, Allah and his angels send blessings upon the Prophet. Oh, you who believe, send blessings on him and salute him with all respect. Wa salat. <laughs>